wanna smash, crash, mash, mash, blast the system. We wanna get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud. This pumping rhythm is hitting. We wanna make it clear. We ain't scared. This is the vision we want. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, with co-host Eleanor Goldfield. On the first segment today, we look at the coming Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival in Washington, D.C., July 25th to July 31st, which coincides with National Whistleblower Day. We'll hear from conference organizers Marcel Reed and Michael McRae, as well as comedian and activist Marsha Warfield. They remind us why whistleblowers are so important and need support and protection. Later in the program, Eleanor Goldfield looks at the recent elections in Colombia and highlights the importance of the first Afro-Colombian vice president there and what this means for the region and for U.S. influence and imperialism, which has cast a long shadow over South America. Stay tuned for another Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in this segment, we are honored to feature Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival. That's coming up here July 25 to 31 in Washington, D.C. We are joined by the co-organizers today and a special guest. So let me get straight to introducing our guest today, we are joined by Marcel Reed, Whistleblower Liaison, former ACORN Chair, co-founder and organizer of Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival in Washington, D.C. And Marcel Reed has had a major impact over the last decade in grassroots community organizing, the whistleblowing community, and a national media foundation. Her efforts have resulted in major policy changes. We'll be talking to Marcel here a little bit later in the program, but I also would be remiss if I didn't mention her longtime involvement with the National Board of Pacific. Pacifica Radio and is, of course, an ally of all of us here at Pacifica Radio. Marcel Reed, welcome to the Project Censored Show. Hello, Mickey. It's nice to be here. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule. We're also joined by Michael McRae, who serves as vice chair of the James Beard Foundation Awards Ethics Committee, established in 1990. The Beard Awards are among the nation's most prestigious honors, recognizing leaders in the culinary and food media industries. McRae also has 10 years of experience as founder and managing director of an award-winning boutique film festival on Capitol Hill in 2019. The Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival is recognized as a best festival for innovation in arts, film, and culture from Fest Forums in Santa Barbara. The Best of the Fests is an award ceremony recognizing North America's leading festivals in art, film, culture, food, beverage, and music. McRae also co-founded the International Association of Whistleblowers and served as general counsel for the federally employed Women Legal Education Fund. Michael McRae, you've been on the program before. You are the co-founder of the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival on Capitol Hill. It is a fantastic treat to have you back. Welcome, Michael McRae. Thank you, Mickey. We are also welcoming our special guest, Marsha Warfield. After an overlong period of retirement, Marsha is back for revenge, tackling issues including politics, being black, coming out as a gay woman, and her affair with pizza. That's certainly something I can relate to. Marsha Warfield is best known for her 1986 to 92 role as the tough, no nonsense bailiff Roz Russell on the NBC sitcom Night Court. She also starred in the sitcom Empty Nest as Dr. Maxine Douglas and as a performer on The Richard Pryor Show. 
Marsha has appeared on shows like Soul Train, The Arsenio Hall Show, The Tonight Show, and even had a talk show of her own appropriately titled The Marsha Warfield Show. She's open for acts like Esther Phillips, George Duke, Teddy Pendergrass, The OJs, George Carlin, has been nominated for the NAACP Image and Soul Train Awards, and was featured in the Gladys Knight video Men. Her guest appearances include Sybil, The John Larroquette Show, Veronica's Closet, Moshe, Living Single, In Living Color, Smart Guy, Clueless, Cheers, Saved by the Bell, and more. And Marsha, I recognize more than a few of those. Marsha Warfield, it is an honor to welcome you to the Project Censored Show today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it very much. It is my pleasure, and I know our audience is going to enjoy this conversation today. We've been on a roll at the Project Censored Show, not just for years on Whistleblowers, but the last month or so, we've done several shows on whistleblowing and the importance of whistleblowers for a truly free press. And Marcel Reed and Michael McRae, just wanted to start with you briefly before we jump to Marsha, and then we'll come back to you. Marcel, could you talk to us about the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival in Washington, D.C., of which Project Censored is a sponsor and will actually be participating again this year? Marcel. Absolutely. Project Censored has been a strong supporter of the summit through the years. The Whistleblower Summit was organized It actually started as Whistleblower Week years before we got involved. We renamed it the Whistleblower Summit for Civil and Human Rights and then changed the name to the Film Festival when the Film Festival became a part of the summit. But I think what the summit does best is it brings people from a wide spectrum together to see whistleblowers, to support whistleblowers, and to understand the struggles of whistleblowing. I think very often the only time we hear about a whistleblower is when there is a large reward given or when there is a movie made. And there is so much more to whistleblowing than that. So the summit is an attempt for people to understand not only whistleblowers and for whistleblowers to network, but also for people to understand that whistleblowing is something that should be accessible to everyone. And when I became a part of the community, the one thing I did notice was that people who hadn't blown the whistle or hadn't been around whistleblowers found it mysterious. They didn't understand it, didn't understand what it applied to. And it specifically, in my instance, because I come out of organizing, applies to regular people as well as people who are federally employed. Absolutely. And such a very important summit that it is, has been, and it continues to evolve into. By the way, listeners can learn more at whistleblowersummit.com. Michael McRae, let's bring you in here. Tell us a little bit more about the backdrop of Whistleblower Summit and the film festival. Thank you, Mickey. I kind of want to retouch some of the things Marcel said. When we first started doing this, actually, I was involved in Whistleblowers Week in Washington. First thing was, there's a conference of whistleblowers. Why would whistleblowers want to identify themselves? Then why would they want to meet? Back then, one of the things that we started that I noticed was that whistleblowing was being approached from the public health and safety lens, which is very important. But sometimes it, it was a very narrow way to view whistleblowing. And oftentimes it placed everything on kind of the ivory tower. And so I also was on the board of ACORN with Marcel and organizing is our philosophy. It's kind of the way that we look at life. And so we've decided to organize the most unlikely community there is, whistleblowers. And so we started applying that, that technique. So the first thing we did was, okay, this needs to be broader. So we went from Whistleblowers Week in Washington to the Whistleblower Summit for Civil and Human Rights. 
because if you start to view it as a free speech and human right, it broadens the audience. It broadens our base. There's more appeal. And we also added a little bit more diversity. And so some of the things that we did was we would have, you know, Bobby Days on Capitol Hill, but we would always kick back. One event was called Movie Night with the Whistleblowers. We watched all the President's Men and we'd grab a beer and we watched Aaron Brockovich. And we started to notice that more people were coming to the movie night than were going on Capitol Hill. And so we said, wow, well, let's, let's do something with that platform. So once we started watching all the films that we liked, we started to curate films where we thought there were important documentaries. And we wanted to use our platform, A, to uplift people involved in advocacy, and then also journalists. And so we started to curate special films from, from documentaries. And Mickey, lo and behold, filmmakers started to approach us saying, hey, Mike, Marcel, we want to film at the summit. And so then we realized that we had something. So that was the time we made our second, basically we rebranded again to the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival, because as organizers, our goal is to be as bright as possible. Unfortunately, one of the things that we noticed was a lot of the topics that we deal with are very heavy. And so we're going into our 10th year. And this year we want to have some fun, but fun with a purpose. We want to laugh. We want to laugh with a purpose. And so that's also one of the things that the summit is we celebrate everything free speech. And so whether that's press, journalism, but then also satire, because sometimes some of the hardest truths are best told with a little laughter. And so this year we wanted to go get a comedian to come help help us laugh at ourselves. And we couldn't think of anybody better than Marshall Warfield. And so that's when we sent out the invitation. And we're so very pleased she answered our call. Well, Michael, that is absolutely fabulous news. And what a great evolution for the Whistleblower Summit. And of course, this is the time to bring you in, Marsha Warfield. The trajectory of your career, your work and activism, how did you get to this place where you you are this good match for the Whistleblower Summit? I don't know. I guess I always have been the same. Early in my career, when I was uh, not out, I was uh, in the closet. Uh, I did a lot about men and women and trying to tell truths to both genders that they don't tell each other. And then I took a long time off. I came out. I started doing stand-up again. And uh, my truths expanded. The appeal for me is truth. We live in a fake news world where people can't discern the truth, even when it's as obvious as it is. And so we get a lot of damage. And Part of the damage is you get organizations like ACORN come under attack for no reason and end up being uh, dissolved and and harming people in real life because someone's political agenda made them manufacture things that were stupid on the face, but people believe them. And so anytime I have a chance to expose truth, to celebrate truth, to show the obviousness of what is true as opposed to what it is we will buy, I'd like to take advantage of it. And my feeling is that we live in a country based on lies. And so part of my mission is to expose all of those lies and where and how they damage us and how much better things would be. We would get out of this spirit of competition and into a spirit of cooperation where people will work together to affect the changes that need to be made for the greater good. Again, your background and the many orbits that you have been in over the years 
aren't just impressive from a professional or career standpoint, but you've stood side by side with some pretty colossal and iconic truth tellers that paid heavy prices for telling the truth, even as comedy. Like under the cloak of comedy, interestingly enough, as you well know, we really need to go to those satirists and critics and comics to get the truth because the news isn't allowed to report them. Well, they don't always know either. And I think a lot of times we get confused nowadays with the people who try to diminish people who tell truthful satire and, and, and pointing out the fallacies. We get diminished by people who say, and comedians do it, and it makes me nuts when they say, well, it's just a joke. There's no such thing as just a joke. Every joke. My mother taught me from the time I was a small child, she said, many true words are spoken in a joke. So you don't just say things and think you can get away with them because you ha at the end. And uh, we get a lot of, uh, uh, with Richard Pryor's and, and, uh, and uh, Carlin's and those people. And, and I grew up watching Lenny Bruce uh, go to jail as a small child. And, and I've seen the price that comedians pay. And I've also seen comedians, and I mentioned that in a post today about how I've seen comedians back away from truth because there is a price to pay. The hype masters of capitalism will, you know, say, just shut up and dribble or just tell your little jokes. And, and um, if you do, they will reward you uh, financially very well. And uh, a lot of people are sucked into that. Well, you end up with generations of people who have been lied to, who have built their whole belief systems on lies because people won't stand up and say, okay, well, you know, I'm okay in this apartment. I don't need your mansion. I'm going to tell you what I got to tell you. Yeah. And you know, Marsha, comedians, satirists, critics, they experience some things that might overlap with whistleblowers, and that's the consequence of speaking truth, not just speaking truth to power, but speaking truth as a process of power. Just the powerful nature of saying those things out loud without fear of reprisal or consequence, right? Well, you run up against people who, like I said, have been so indoctrinated that the truth sounds like a lie to them. They don't want to believe it. And you can be very clear about it, about what is true and they will still reject it. So there's a little pushback there, but that's where, in my opinion, the artistry comes in. You know, anybody can make a hamburger, but not everybody is a chef. And everybody can't tell the truth funny well. There are people who do, there are the Chappelle's, there are the Priors, those people. And then there's, you know, the guy at the bar who's telling you lies and he believes them, so he thinks you should, too. We are speaking with Marsha Warfield. She is part of the Whistleblower Summit this year. We're also joined by co-organizers Marcel Reed and Michael McRae. We are going to take a quick break. I'm Mickey Huff with the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, but we're going to continue our conversation with our guests about the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are honored to welcome Marsha Warfield. Marsha is a comedian, among many other things, a talented actor, has a long history going back to the NBC sitcom Night Court through many, many shows and is a luminary, will be participating and performing at this year's Whistleblower Summit. We're also joined by whistleblower liaison and one of the co-founders and organizers of the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival in D.C., Marcel Reed. And, of course, we are also joined by Michael McRae, co-founder of the International Association of Whistleblowers, also a major part of the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival. And, Marcia, we're going to come back to you, but I wanted to bring Marcel and Michael back in. Just wanted to riff on a couple of the ideas that uh, Marcia just gave us uh, there and that is the the thing with whistleblowers and I know Michael and Marcel I know that we've had these conversations before project censored goes back to about 2014 we had the distinct honor of of receiving the pillar award Andy Roth and I, where we met Cheryl Atkinson, amazing journalist, Tom Devine, Government Accountability Project. We just met a lot of fantastic people that we've stayed in touch with. And so the, the legacy of your work we find to be incredibly important, especially in networking. And that's really important because a lot of whistleblowers, let's start with you, Michael. A lot of whistleblowers experience alienation and fear, and they're the targets of malicious retaliation. And that makes it often hard for them to trust people. So, Michael, could you say a few words about that? And how does the summit function as a safe haven or a place where these people can not just be heard, but recognized? Everybody has a mouth, but not everybody can tell a joke or tell a story. And one of the most important things in what we're dealing with is the ability to tell a concise story to get picked up, to get people's interest, to draw people in. People don't know how to pitch their stories. And one of the things that we've added this year to the summit is we're gonna have a two and a half day intensive creative lab. Because what we found is that one, whether you're a filmmaker, whether you're a screenwriter or a whistleblower, it all starts with a pitch. Everybody, the power's in the story, but it all starts with a pitch. One of the problems that we have is because whistleblowers have suffered, essentially they're suffering from PTSD. And it's hard for them to turn it on and turn it off. And once, sometimes once they get a mic, it's hard to get it back. And it's one of those things where you don't have a chance. You can blow your own opportunity because you can't take a breath and let someone else and breathe at the appropriate point and laugh at the appropriate point. And so that pitching thing is so very important. It's critical for um, for whistleblowers to be able to get the attention for the journalist, the reporter, you know, to get past the editor, to get to the publisher, to get your book, to do your whole deal. And then it's also just as important for, you know, screenwriters and filmmakers. So we're very pleased that in the 10th anniversary of the Whistleblower Summit that you can find at www.whistleblowersummit.com, that we're having this Hollywood Creative Lab. And that is so very important. It was a very, it was a perfect point that, um, that Marsha just made. Indeed, it's a rich history of films. In fact, a lot of times the general public, that's how they tend to find things out. Unfortunately, that is sometimes how they learn history and Hollywood doesn't have a great track record on the accuracy in some of those stories they tell. But there are key examples, especially around whistleblowers, where that is the case that they can better tell the story. And now in in the era of streaming services, there's more and more potential for these kind of stories to get picked up. Recently, speaking to Rick Parks, who was part of the Netflix series on Meltdown on Three Mile Island, for example. A lot of people, especially a lot of young people, Three Mile Island, you know, it might as well just be a theme park to them. They don't know what happened in 1979. Or, you know, even people as well known as Frank Serpico, who we had on the program a couple weeks ago, 
people may remember that back from Al Pacino, but a lot of folks even that I talked to after I spoke with Frank a couple few weeks ago is that he was still being harassed. This is a pattern that whistleblowers often experience. The fact that they chose to tell the truth follows them through their lives. It's always behind them, and they have to look over their shoulders. Marcel Reed, can you come in here and comment on some of those kind of dynamics and, again, why the summit is, is really so crucial for a whistleblower community? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that when Michael first spoke to me about this, he spoke to me about Dick Gregory. And I know that Marsha has been awarded a prize from Dick Gregory's family. Actually, one of the people working with this year's summit was at the event. But I'd like to talk about pitching in a slightly different way, because I understand that everyone wants a movie and everyone wants a film and everyone wants a book. But what I find that falls apart very often in the life of a whistleblower is their interpersonal dynamics. They no longer have the ability to laugh or they take a comment the wrong way. It's difficult enough to deal with the stress that truth brings. And and I want to point out over and over and over again that telling the truth does not make your life easier. It makes your life demonstrably harder. And one of the things you have to do if you're committed to truth-telling is to find a way that the other people in your life don't feel like it's an unbearable burden. And it can be an unbearable burden for some people. And if you're not gifted with an automatic sense of humor, and all those who know me well know that I laugh at inappropriate times, but it's always gotten me through. But I looked around, I observed the whistleblowers my first few years around them, and what I noted distinctly was a lack of humor. So they couldn't interact well with other people. And I also know that I was at WPFW and Dick Gregory was there a great deal. And I saw Mrs. Maisel and all of us that have had any uh, bump against Pacifica understands what happened with George Carlin and the case that went to the Supreme Court because he dared to describe things as what they were. And Lenny Bruce, and we've all watched Mrs. Maisel. So we all know what happens to you when you tell the truth. But when you don't get the book, when the scriptwriter won't write your story, do you have the resilience and the ability to keep living your life with other people? And for me, that is so important because fame is fleeting. Family should be more permanent. Well, as, as someone that's attended the summit, I certainly get a feeling that that's something that's there. I certainly encourage folks while we're talking, go to whistleblowersummit.com. That's the website for the events coming up between July 25th and July 31st. We're speaking with Michael McRae. That was just Marcel Reed. And Marsha Warfield, let's bring you back in here into the conversation. How do you find your craft and your way? I think what came to me as I was listening is like most good things, it seems nowadays in our society, they're not celebrated. When people come forward with a truth, they are attacked. And as time goes on, the attacks pile on. So of course, they're going to have a negative experience. It seems to me that events like this 
where people can be celebrated, where they can be among people who, who appreciate them, who understand, gives them a measure of peace. And it also brings awareness to other people who are sympathetic, who understand and who would celebrate too. But what we get since our media is set up the way it is, what we get is attack, attack, attack. So if we could give them a little applause and a little add a girl, add a boy, come on, let's keep on doing it. If you know something, you can come up here and be this, be in this too. All to the good, all to the good. And I feel that way about many things, about women, about black people. They need to be celebrated. There's so much wonderful history that is not celebrated and, and acknowledged and and if we just start doing that a little more, I think that can go such a long way to righting the um, imbalance that we are forced to live with. And a lot of that history not taught as someone that teaches history, right? And now just in the last year, sort of resurrected in the culture wars, this whole idea that no, we can't teach the truth about the past. You know, I mean, I've been a history professor for 20 years struggling to teach students the truth, often the ugly truth, but not always the heroic truth of people that stood up and did something. And oftentimes those people were whistleblowers of certain stripes. Project Censored has long been a major supporter of, of whistleblowers. We've done a lot of coverage on everything from Chelsea Manning, Thomas Drake, a lot, lot of folks that have been involved with the Whistleblower Summit over the years, John Kiriakow, reality winner, work with a lot of journalists like Kevin Gastola, who, who covers whistleblowers a lot. We're just working on a book with him now on Julian Assange, probably one of the most iconic whistleblowers of, of our time in terms of his support of free press and journalism. Right now is not being applauded. He's actually rotting in a cell in Belmarsh prison as the United States and Britain are trying to extradite him to the United States and bring him up on 17 charges under the Espionage Act. So that's that's the the diametrically opposite of the applause. And too often, that's what whistleblowers see and get is they they see retaliation and punishment. I wanted to bring up one more thing for all of you. And Marsha, I'm very glad that you brought this up is on the diversity of whistleblowers. And I know a lot of the folks that I just rattled off are white or are white males. So can each of you talk a little bit about how the summit really addresses the issue of diversity among whistleblowers and why it's so important so that we can understand that some whistleblowers even have more trouble or more difficulty than others? I'd like to address it first. Marcel? One of the first things I noticed when I went to the summit was that Title VII whistleblowers didn't seem to be as valued as other whistleblowers. As a matter of fact, the MSPB, the Merit System Protection Board, is back in place now, but they are discarding Title VII complaints as, as not being complaints they want to address as whistleblower complaints. So that automatically puts minorities and women at a disadvantage in the community. And it is true, when you rattle off the name of whistleblowers, you don't rattle off the names of a variety of people. You generally rattle off the names of males, white, women, white. And when we come on board as being whistleblowers, they even put us in very narrow categories. We can't be an intelligence community whistleblower. We have to be the whistleblower who's talking about something that went wrong at some plant somewhere. And I just like to say that what I have found in the community is that whistleblowers are full spectrum and all colors. 
in all industries. And that is something that is seldom reported on. And when you pull pictures of whistleblowers, you don't see us. Or if you do, it's on the fifth page of Google, not the first. We're out of time for this segment, but I can tell you it's been an extraordinary honor to speak with you again, Marcel Reed, Michael McRae, Marsha Warfield. And I hope people go and check out whistleblowersummit.com. It is a unique event that combines legislative advocacy, public policy discussions, community and social events, book signings, and a film festival. And Marsha Warfield will be there delivering excellent stand-up and commentary. So Michael McRae, Marcel Reed, Marsha Warfield, thank you all for all that you do. Thanks for coming on the Project Censored show. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Mickey. And that was my conversation on the Whistleblower Summit and Film Festival with Marcel Reed, Michael McRae, and Marsha Warfield. Up next, Eleanor Goldfield looks at the recent elections in Colombia. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad to be joined right now by Jimena Sanchez, who's a human rights advocate with the Washington Office on Latin America, aka WOLA, an independent organization that promotes human rights and justice within the framework of U.S. foreign policy in the region, where she leads the Colombia, Brazil, and Haiti work. For over 15 years, she has brought the voices of persons affected by U.S. policies in the region, Afro-descendants, indigenous, women, LGBT, trade unionists, victims, and the displaced to D.C. Her work focuses on dismantling illegal armed groups, advancing peace accords and anti-racism measures, protecting social leaders, seeking justice for atrocities, and upholding labor rights. Jimena, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I know that you said that you were recently just back from Colombia, where you witnessed some big celebrations following the elections on June 19th of the leftist president, Gustavo Petro, and first Afro-Colombian vice president, Frankia Marquez. So I'm curious to give us an image of what you saw there, what you heard and saw from people in Colombia following the election results. Well, the day of the elections on the 19th, I really didn't know what was going to happen because the air was incredibly tense. Just prior to the elections, the right-wing media had been promoting the idea that Rodolfo Hernandez, an outsider candidate who leads the League of Anti-Corruption, but who is being investigated for corruption, might actually win. And so there was a lot of unsettled feelings and a lot of fear that the country might erupt into riots or that the country might be tipped over into a civil war should Gustavo Petro not win. And this really comes from the fact that last year there were mass riots in Colombia that were met with tremendous repression. And in a lot of ways, the historic pact, the movement that Gustavo Petro has led, represents most of the interests and needs and recommendations of the majority of the people who were involved in in those social protests last year. And so the feeling was that that whole movement might retake the streets 
if there was either fraud, wrongdoing, or what have you. And given that the right had basically backed this outsider candidate with all of their will, basically he was their plan B, and had actually called that there had been fraud in the first round of the elections, we really didn't know what could happen. So that's how the day started. I was in Cali, Colombia. I went to at least six different polling sites to do electoral observation. Everything was calm. Everything was very well put together. People were really interested in the process, taking it very seriously. You had people running to the polls to vote, including youth, which is something that is less seen in Colombia. And then by 4.30, you started getting the results. And already when it seemed that Petro was going to win, it erupted into a huge party. It became like an outpouring of people into the streets, carnival, singing, dancing, honking horns, tons of flags everywhere, especially the M19 flag. The M19 was a guerrilla movement that demobilized in the late 80s, early 90s, and helped to bring about what is known as the Constitutional Assembly that led to the new 1991 political constitution, of which Gustavo Petro was a part, and several different people in the historic pact were a part of. And so definitely, with all of the M19 flags out there, there was the indication of hope that this process that had been started in 1991 of making a government that was more for the people, more pluri-ethnic, more egalitarian, more representative, and more democratic was coming back and was actually going to happen. Because what we've seen in the past 20 plus years has been actually everything trying to stifle that new constitution that happened in 1991, because the right and the business and economic sectors have basically tried to do that. So you saw these flags, you saw people singing and dancing, you saw Afro-Colombians, indigenous people, elderly people. I mean, it was insane. And it went on for basically five days. So I think that that happiness I had not seen in Colombia since the signing of the peace accord in 2016. So when the peace accord was signed in 2016 between the FARC and Colombia, I was at the ceremony in Cartagena, and there you had that same excitement, that same hope, that same joy, you know, people crying in the streets and that kind of thing. And, I, and then that very much stopped shortly after there was a plebiscite that lost for the peace, and then the government that came in of Ivan Duque that basically did everything in their power to undermine the peace. I do want to touch on that in a minute, but I want to first talk about Marquez, because a lot of your work has focused on, as you put it, Afro-descendants and women in places like Colombia, Brazil, and Haiti. And Marquez being the first Afro-Colombian vice president seems really important to highlight. And she's also an environmentalist who has a long history of organizing. So I'm curious how you see this as significant, particularly in those areas that you've focused on in in terms of Afro-Colombian indigenous rights, poverty, and environmental devastation. Full disclosure, I've worked with Francia Marquez and her movement, which is the Black Communities Process, and more specifically in her region, the Association of Black Women of Northern Cauca, since about 2006. So I first met Francia when she was leading an effort to block illegal gold mining in ancestral Afro-Colombian territory. So 
after Colombia gave Afro-Colombian collective land rights, it only titled parts of the country. So 6.5 million hectares were titled to Afro-Colombians and they became the official owners of their lands. And one area that wasn't titled was Northern Cauca and the area of Suarez and the town of La Toma, which is where Francia Marquez is from. Although all the people living there are descendants um, who have been there since the time that they were brought over on the slave ships. And so what has happened is that while the land is mostly Afro-Colombian controlled and, and they're there, outsiders, third parties have illegally come in and basically claimed that parts of those lands are theirs and gotten false documents claiming that there were those lands. So I met Francia when she was trying to stop the illegal eviction of her entire community. And so we did a whole global international campaign that even led to the Obama White House intervening and stopping that eviction. After that, she started gaining more ground in terms of a leader, because at that time she was a very young leader. She started organizing the Black women of Northern Cauca against massacres taking place in her territories, the lack of real security for Afro-Colombian women in those areas, and basically all of the ways that the multiple free trade agreements that the Colombian government has signed with half the world, I think they're 19, were affecting the possible economies of the local Black women in that area. And they marched from La Toma, Cauca, all the way to Bogota, which took days and took over several buildings, several ministries to get attention to their situation. Francia then went and studied law as an adult. It was very difficult, very hard for her. Access to education for rural Black women and Afro-Colombians in general is very restrictive and almost impossible. But she managed to find a way to study law. And she actually led a case legally in favor of her community and has done so since then. So after she got known because of all of this, she won the Goldman Environmental Prize that gave her more global standing. And she ran for Congress a couple of elections ago and got one of the highest levels of votes, which is pretty amazing for somebody who didn't have the backing of political parties. And then this led her to run for the presidency and eventually said she got the second highest level of votes, Gustavo Petro made her his vice president. So the whole Francia phenomenon was very important during these elections because it was the first time in Colombian history where in electoral debates, you had discussions about certain things. One of them is about what she calls the outsiders or the nobodies, which is basically everybody except for the Colombian educated political elite, which is mostly urban and mestizo, not Afro-Colombian, not female, not indigenous. So she brought in to all of those debates these questions. At the same time, it exposed something that is very common in Colombia, which is the racism, but in a very open way. So according to the Observatory Anti-Racism, Francia received at least 500 instances of racial attacks or what have you, even having famous singers call her King Kong and things like that. And also a lot of misogynistic comments against her, things like she should be the maid, what is she doing here, you know, 
But that brought on a lot of discussion about issues of racism in the country, which is something that the country negates as a whole, as a society that exists. And she really brought in the voice of that rural countryside, of that hardworking Colombian that you see in multiple different sectors around the country. So she shifted the political debates very openly during the debates. And once she started campaigning with Petro, she really focused more on what the agenda would be, which is she's going to be running something called the Ministry of Equality. So first, vice presidents in Colombia can or cannot have power. It's determined by the presidency that they want to do certain things and they're given those portfolios. And so she's obviously going to be an active vice president. She's going to run this Ministry of Equality which serves to deal with the empowerment of women, but not just in name, but actual political participation and support for their agricultural products and things like that and building their own economies, as well as all of the differentiated ways that ethnic groups from the Black communities, Raizales, Indigenous, and their collective rights need to be strengthened and protected. So that's going to be a major, major thing. I should add, though, that it is very uncommon in Colombia until this election to even see Afro descendants at that level being considered national figures. So she also broke that big glass ceiling. And part of that was because once she started running, all of the other parties, except for the right party, decided that they had to have Black presidential candidates. So we started seeing what was the battle of the Black presidential candidates, something that was unheard of in Colombia, although not everybody who was running came from her background. They weren't rural. They were either very educated or not even linked to the Afro-Colombian movement or in touch with any of those issues. But anyway, it forced a lot of debates that I think are crucial and very important to Colombia and actually has given overall Afro-descendants in the entire country far more standing, and women far more standing. And already we're seeing that the new cabinet that's being announced has a lot of prominent women that are going to be leading things and is definitely the most culturally diverse cabinet so far in the history of Colombia. I'm glad I asked that question because I had no idea that you were personally connected to her. So that's some really powerful backstory to where we are at today. I wanted to circle back, shifting back to Petro here. I wanted to circle back because you had mentioned the M19 and he's already called for a ceasefire and talks with the LN. Um, And I know that you've dealt a lot with peace accords and peace talks in recent years. And so I was wondering if you could first talk about the status of this relationship and following the breakdown while uh, Duque was president and what you expect to see from Petro on this front. We'll start with the Colombia peace process 2016 between the Colombian state and the FARC. So the FARC is basically a Marxist-Leninist organization that was supported by the Soviet Union. It was supported by Cuba that over the decades, because this was a more than five decade long conflict, shifted and changed and became involved in illicit activities as a way to support their revolutionary project, which was mostly a campesino project that sought to replicate some form of what you would see maybe in Cuba or maybe even China with less of a Maoist 
approach. There's a very different revolutionary movement, like the M19, which Petro was a part of, which is an urban intellectual movement that tries to look at the idea of how do you create a people's democracy and that very much poo-poos the FARC and their approach. So I just want to mention that because you had right-wing Republican Congress people in the U.S. Congress be like, Gustavo's a communist, a terrorist, guerrilla, and Colombia's going to turn into Venezuela and Cuba, and, you know, completely messing everything up and jumbling it up together because of another agenda. And the biggest thing that is frustrating to me when I hear that is that they're like, it's going to be like the country's taken over by the FARC. The M-19 is so different than the FARC and Petro himself, and even if you read his writings and everything, is incredibly critical of the FARC. But anyway, that other group demobilized in this peace talk, which was after five failed peace talks that crashed and burned and turned into a situation where you had massive human rights violations as a result. And this peace accord was very important and tremendous because it managed to have some of the pillars of the structural changes that Colombia needs to deal with its mass inequality, its land issues. Colombia is the only country where you've never had a land reform in Latin America, where you um, actually open up political participation to multiple groups. You have to understand that Colombia for many years only had two parties that basically just shifted power and nobody else could be involved in the national debate or have any entry into the political debates or representation. It is a peace accord that is the most comprehensive in terms of gender and women's rights, something that the right has then taken to bash the peace accord, saying it was an imposed gender ideology from the outside. But if you actually look at the peace accord, it doesn't talk about reproductive rights or anything like that. It basically talks about basic equal rights between men and women. And then it's the most comprehensive accord in terms of integration of ethnic rights. And that came because the African indigenous movement did a whole global campaign for it to be that way. Also, it has a whole section on how to deal with illicit coca crops. Illicit coca obviously is one of the illicit economies that, you know, the drug trade that is most problematic in Colombia and most problematic to outside countries, especially the United States. But also it realistically looked at how you could get coca farmers to have an alternative because you can't just tell people don't grow coca and leave them with absolutely nothing else. When you have a conflict situation where they can't do anything else, there are no other markets and, and what have you. And you have illegal groups out there forcing them to grow the coca. So anyway, this major peace accord was a major achievement. It wasn't perfect, but it got more than 13,000 members of the FARC to demobilize. The level of recidivism has been very low. However, more than 300 of them have been killed after being demobilized. What happened? A new president came in campaigning on destroying the peace accord. This president was really elected by the entire right, all of the economic um, sectors banding together to guarantee that Gustavo Petro, who was running at that time, didn't win. And they did it in a very dirty way, including these campaigns of false information and also the fact that the peace accord was signed and the elections took place very shortly after, before the actual contents of the peace accord was actually socialized with most of the country, led to the situation. So you had Ivan Duque, Duque found himself in a situation where the entire rest of the world was like, we love this peace accord and we want you to implement it. And if you want money from 
us, Norway, Sweden, all these countries, UN, you need to implement this peace accord. So what did he do? He did something very cynical that's very typical of the upper Colombian political class, which is he decided that he was going to implement something called peace with legality. So he promoted his government that they were implementing peace, but they weren't implementing the peace accord that was signed in 2016. Aspects of it shifted, changed, and what have you. And then we just learned that most of the funds of the peace were actually going to friends in terms of contracts or what have you, because there's this massive scandal now of corruption of much of the peace funds. So what happened? First, the peace wasn't really being implemented. So all the things that you needed for it to work, like the reintegration of former combatants didn't happen, all of the territorial peace projects that were meant to help farmers, victims, and whatnot weren't happening. And then they did an international battle against the transitional justice system, specifically to make sure that their people and themselves weren't being held to account for crimes that were committed during that time. And so it was kind of a disaster. And what happened on the ground was that more than 1,200 social leaders killed since the signing of the accord. Over 300 former combatants of the FARC killed. At least 70 plus massacres and rising around the country. And you also had tangentially to that, the ELN, which had signed a ceasefire prior to the forming the, the finishing of the accord with the FARC because they didn't want to do an accord jointly with the FARC. They wanted their own accord. They were advancing with that. And the government being like, well, we're not negotiating at all with the ELN, the secondary guerrilla group. So the ELN upping attacks, which meant the military upping attacks and multiple parts of the country basically inflamed in combat. So which areas are we talking about? We're talking about the border with Venezuela, where the ELN has a stronghold. And we're talking about parts of the Pacific near the Panama border. And so those areas became hotspots for increased humanitarian crises and displacement. So in the case of Choco, which is the department that borders Panama, more than 80% of the population was under a humanitarian crisis. You had thousands of people newly displaced. And then you had forced recruitment of Embera indigenous people by the illegal armed groups. You had the FARC demobilized. Some of the FARC regrouped, but very small amount because of Duque and the way the government wasn't giving them what they wanted. And the other groups in those areas, the paramilitary groups, the right-wing militias being like, okay, everybody's fighting, so we're going to fight too. So you have situations where you had the ELN fighting, then 13, 14 other illegal groups fighting in those same areas, and the result is horrible. For the population. On top of that, you had a president that during the pandemic decided that it was a good idea to raise taxes on the people most affected by the pandemic. Already during the pandemic, Colombia had one of the most restrictive kind of laws of people couldn't move place to place. That was disastrous. So you had hunger rising in the country. The packages that they gave to help to address the COVID economic crisis, a lot of them ended up in the hands of friends and contracts and had severe corruption issues. So the country in 2021 erupted into mass protests against this government. 
instead of taking that as an opportunity to dialogue with all of the sectors of society and finding a solution, the response was a tremendously repressive police response that was a militarized police response. You have to understand that the police in Colombia is under the Ministry of Defense. And so huge areas like Cali were basically under the command of the military. You had attacks against areas in common communities um, by anti-riot police that are akin to military attacks, you know, helicopters, and you know, what have you. Lots of people killed, lots of people angered, really bad situation. So Duque um, leaves that wonderful uh, legacy. Um, internationally, he built himself as the most humanitarian president because he didn't kick out the Venezuelans. You know, Colombia has 2 million Venezuelans in Colombia and Colombia hasn't kicked them out. But at the same time, if they wanted to, they couldn't because they wouldn't be able to um, logistically and institutionally. But anyway, they haven't kicked them out. They've been you know, nice to them. That doesn't mean that their rights are being upheld and that the situation's great for the migrants. But he sold himself as this to the international community as the best friend to the US on the effort to change the government in Venezuela and as a big environmentalist, which is really spin because in reality, Colombia has a very high rate of deforestation and a lot of these projects, the Jeff Bezos project and others in Colombia that are supposed to save the Amazon, it's very questionable whether they're really benefiting the Amazon, the indigenous people there. So he leaves kind of in a very disgraced state. Luckily he leaves because there was concern for a while that he wouldn't leave. The way that they were planting things here to the United States, the U.S. Congress, like, oh my God, there's gonna be this takeover. Colombia's gonna turn into Venezuela. We have to do everything to stop this from happening. To the point that when Francia Marquez was here a couple of weeks before the election, the State Department refused to meet with her. State Department went to Colombia to meet with the presidential candidates and met with every single one but Petro. So the spin, the marketing, the fear, and all of that was working very well. So anyway, that's the country that Petro is inheriting. And what we've seen so far is that he has a great plan to address all of these things. Well, I'm glad to hear it because it certainly seems like quite a cluster that he has inherited. And I wanted to, kind of wrapping up here, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ties between Washington and Columbia because Duque was very close to Washington. And, you know, when the the, the kind of rolling coup against Venezuela was going on, Duque visited Washington and pledged that he was going to do everything he could to protect U.S. interests there. So I'm curious how you see Washington reacting to this. And do you think that they'll take measures to cast Petro as a dictator the same way that they've done with Maduro? How do you see that playing out? And do you think that Venezuela and Colombia could now join forces to combat that U.S. imperialism? The concern with Petro is that what he wants to do is make Colombia less dependent on these free trade agreements, not just the U.S. one, but all the others. Because these free trade agreements solidify an economic model that is very neoliberal based, that doesn't benefit a good majority of the Colombian people. It doesn't even benefit the government that well, because most of it really is set up for multinationals to get what they want. And it has deepened problems that were already happening in the country, creating violence, inequality, and illicit economy. 
Petro is going to open relationship with Venezuela. It's absolutely ridiculous that Colombia and Venezuela have had such a horrible relationship. It's never been as bad as it's been under Duque because they share a really, really long border that is incredibly complex. And that whole economy of the border has gone to the floor because of it. No one can deal with anything that's going on there because they don't talk to each other. And so I think that we may see some fear mongering around Venezuela, um, but the approach is to reopen the relationship that has been there forever and to the benefit of the people of both sides. And so our fear is that those things may trigger some kind of um, crazy reaction here in Washington and efforts to block and disinformation. And so people should really pay attention to what's going on, because if that happens, I think there needs to be action from people in the United States. Where can folks go to learn more about the work that you do and to stay informed? On our website, wola.org, sign up for updates on what's going on. And then also you can follow Francia Marquez on Twitter or even Gustavo Petro on Twitter, although those two sources are only in Spanish. Another good resource is English written summary of the news that comes out by a Dutch guy who's in Colombia called ColombiaReports.org. Thank you so much for taking the time to outline all this for us. Thank you. We want to smash, crash, blast, smash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud. This pumping rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear. We ain't scared. This is the vision we want. And that does it for another episode today. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010. I am Mickey Huff, executive producer and co-host of the program, along with co-host and associate producer Eleanor Goldfield. Special thanks to Anthony Fest, our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. Please feel free to share your feedback or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. Last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars, far for little poison. The weapons manufactured made for our attacks and all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love, we flip the brothers and our sisters.